Book Stew viewers. So there was an episode a ways back that featured the Gloucester Writers Group, the Finishing Line Group, and some of them had published their books and some of them hadn't. Well, today I have a clip from that show and then I'm gonna show you what happens if you keep writing and if you don't give up. Yours is an illustrated memoir, so that's kind of unusual. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of memoirs have pictures but uh, tell us about how you're going to, how you came up with the idea and how you're going to mesh the illustrations and pictures with the words. Well, I'm a visual artist as well as uh, a writer, and I've been making uh, silkscreen prints throughout my life, which are very um, evocative of my life places I lived and scenes that were familiar to me. So they fit very well with the narrative of the story because they really do illustrate. And you know what they say, oh, pictures worth a thousand words. And so I'm hoping to intersperse them throughout. Um, the, the book is uh, in seven parts, and each part is about a major relationship in my life. And it takes place between 1967 and 1993. Mm. So, so Bookstu viewers, I would love for you to meet once again an author who is dear to my heart because she's also my best friend. And you know I've had my mother on the show, I've had my daughter on the show, I think I even had my daughter's boyfriend on the show, so it's all, kind of an all in the family thing, but um, I would like you to meet Jane Ketty, who is my best friend and has been my best friend for 39 years. Uh, we ex-roommates, now just friends, and Jane has written a book and now published a book. So Jane, if you could show the book to everybody. And the name of the book is? Serial Monogamy, an Illustrated Memoir. Okay, so what makes this book special to me other <clears throat> than the fact that I'm in it, my cartoons are in it, and you wrote it, and it's about our lives, mostly yours, is that um, there's, a paint, there's a print that you did that actually constitutes the cover of the book. So can you tell the viewers a little bit about a, the print, where it comes from, and B, what serial monogamy means and what they could expect to find uh, when they buy it. Okay, um, well the print is of an actual stove that I had in an apartment in Brookline, in a basement apartment where I lived. And I just fell in love with this stove and it was at a time of my life where I was really exploring my art and feeling very good about myself. So. This brings back a lot of very positive memories. And you are, I mean, I have to uh, add to that you're not just uh, a, an author, but you're an artist and you also are a hell of a cook. <laughs> so the stove being in there is not a big surprise. Okay, so, so serial monogamy, <clears throat> how long has the title and putting a memoir out combined with um, beautiful illustrations been floating around in your head? Well, I, I've been keeping journals for uh, since college. And in a journal entry in around 1984, I think it was, I say, great stoned idea for a book, Serial Monogamy. And that's where the seed was planted. And it's just kind of been, you know, running around in my head since then. Until about seven years ago, I decided it's time to start on this. And I joined a writer's group at the Gloucester Writer Center and have been working on it for seven years. So um, <clears throat> I know that when, when you uh, shared the book with other people in your writer's group, 
some of them were not really enthusiastic about the idea of like the size of the book mm -hmm. and and that it didn't look like a standard book which I hardly disagree with what made you stand firm on that well mostly because there are so many illustrations in the book I felt like it needed a larger format to really show them off well and um, and I also feel like this book is somewhat unique in the fact that it's a memoir and it's illustrated that it should have a unique presentation I, I, I couldn't agree with you more so what makes your story unique what what <clears> made <throat> you think I mean the rest you know everybody else who doesn't write a memoir you live your life and maybe some exciting things happen maybe some horrible things happen maybe some great things happen but not everybody is prepared to write it and share it with the world so what do you think was the determining factor behind your motivation to tell everybody all these intimate details of your life? Well, in some ways it was cathartic, and in some ways it was um, a way to make sense of what happened in my life. I took a very different path than a lot of people, and becoming a single mother was definitely a different path. So it was a way for me to justify all the decisions I made along the way, and it really helped me process everything that I went through. So before you decided to start writing, because uh, I don't keep a journal, or you know, I, I was the type of person who like, I'd get a diary for my birthday and I'd, you know, the first page would be whatever movie I saw that week and then I would never open it or look at it again. But you consistently kept journals and if you hadn't, you couldn't have written the book. Right. So what motivated you when, you when you were younger to keep journals and do you still do it? Yes, I still do it. Uh, probably not as consistently, but I still do it. And I think even back then, it was a way to process my feelings. I had a lot of issues about my parents' divorce and uh, an early bout with depression that writing helped me figure it out and helped me get through it. And did you go back and read them before you started working on the memoir? Yes, absolutely. I reread them all and I tagged which pieces I thought would be relevant to oh, the book. Oh, so you were really kind of, and the whole time you were journaling almost, you were pretty much creating Working a memoir. This, yeah. So did that make it easier or harder to put it together? The fact that not only was it your life, but that you were familiar with the material you were going to pull together to publish. Um, I think it was very, uh, made it a lot easier. And I mean, some people say, how, did you re how do you remember these things so clearly? And I wouldn't have remembered them if I hadn't written them down. So. Well, I was there through probably almost all of this, and you, you uh, <clears throat> remembered <laughs> people, bars, and men that I had completely forgotten. So um, why don't we start? I'd love you to do a reading that takes place. I'll give the background on it since I'm allowed. It's my show. And um, <laughs> the background is that we became roommates in 1973. Yes. In Brighton. I moved up from New York to go to college. You moved back to Boston from Yukon where you went to college and we ended up being roommates and we lived in a house with two other women and in Brighton and downstairs was um, someone who wasn't a roommate but was very much a part of our lives. So I'd love for you to read the section about our downstairs roommate on Lothrop Street in Brighton. Okay. One cold and snowy day at the end of March, when I arrived home from the grocery shopping, Eileen greeted me with, what's the worst possible thing you can think of to happen? 
Nuclear war? Unwanted pregnancy, I said. No, worse. We needed to leave our home of three years on Lothrop Street by May 1st. The landlord's son was getting married and wanted our apartment. After processing the news for a while and talking about what next, on a sunny Sunday afternoon in April, as I was working on a macrame piece and Eileen was reading, we heard Pa bang loudly on the pipes, his signal for one of us to come down right away. I hurried downstairs and he told me in his usual loud, angry sounding voice to tell the roommates to come downstairs right away. I had no idea what he wanted, thinking that either we had done something horrible or maybe we didn't have to move after all. I went upstairs, gathered the other three, and we rushed downstairs. We found his kitchen table laid out for dinner. Sit, eat, was all he said, and we obeyed silently as Pa served up some of his homemade pasta with, with sauce, his rich, deep purple homemade wine, and for dessert, cake with, with espresso. As we sat, he ranted randomly about Jews and the neighbors next door. Pa had obviously been into the wine before we arrived. He showed us three $100 bills hidden behind photos he had hanging around the house. And then he told us he was angry with his son for kicking us out that he still had our April rent check and he was not giving it to his son, Pete. He wanted us to stay. We left him a few hours later, head swirling from the strong red wine with his God bless you echoing in our heads. We knew Pa meant well, but the writing was on the wall. We would have to move. So that kicked off our adventures together, but that <coughs> isn't the opening of the book. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what happens in, in your life before you go off to college that so informs the title Serial Monogamy and um, what, what drives you? Well, when, before, in my senior year of uh, high school is when my parents' uh, marriage really disintegrated. Uh, they had been going through a lot of trouble all the way through high school. But in my senior year, my mother had her first nervous breakdown and ended up uh, in the loony bin, as she called it. And it was very difficult to process and to deal with because nobody wanted to talk about it. It was a taboo subject. Divorce was taboo, and mental illness was taboo. So um, I went away to college after that with the family still in shambles and not quite knowing um, where I was headed and what was going to happen. And um, the, one of the first courses I took in college was marriage and the family. And uh, that's where I heard, first heard the term serial monogamy. And it almost kind of rang a bell in my head saying, this is probably what is going to happen with me. I don't think I'm ever going to be married for the entire part of my life, if I ever do get married. So were, weren't you dealing with dueling emotions? You had a, uh, an example of a terrible marriage, your parents' marriage. <clears throat> knowing exactly what you wouldn't want to do, yet what would be the, why would you want to launch ev into even trying marriage if the only example you had before you was that of a terrible one? So you kind of decided if everything wasn't perfect and you had all these requirements, mm -hmm. he had to be smart, he had to be into the arts, he had to understand that uh, as an artist you needed to lead your life. He had to be supportive with children. I mean, it, 
you could just, there were like 12 requirements that you had. So in a way, you were almost setting yourself up for um, looking for Mr. Wright forever. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, in my head, it was like, it, this has to be perfect or it's not going to be. This has to be my soulmate and the person that completes me. Um, otherwise, I'm not doing it because I'm not going through divorce and I'm not putting uh, any children or family through that because I had been through it and didn't want to repeat it. It makes me wonder though, and I'll, I would love to hear, I know the book is available on <coughs> Amazon and it'll be interesting when reviews come in to think about how people who are millennials or even beyond that would feel about this because divorce is so prevalent now mm -hmm. that I wonder if they don't just think okay, you know, I'll get married, but it, realistically it, it isn't going to last forever. Mm -hmm. Or if they're still striving for Mr. or Ms. Wright in these times when roles are so confusing. I mean, it, when you graduated from college, in, or you started college in what year? 67. Okay, so this was a time of great flux. There's mm -hmm. no doubt about it. Right. But think about times now as far as roles of men and women, parenting, um, so, I mean, it's almost like the times then were completely confusing. The times now are completely confusing. What People still get married, though. They right. still do, and I think they still get married with high hopes. But it's probably more likely that most men and women will lead lives of serial monogamies like mm -hmm. yours. But maybe even not so, because if all they're doing is swiping and going on Tinder dates, maybe they don't even, even get as get far as temporary monogamy. Right. So um, tell us, a if out of all the um, men who appear in the book, boyfriends, who would you think is um, the most memorable? Who do you think will stick in the heads of the readers as they go through? Because each chapter has a heading of a man and a city or a man and a circumstance. Some men are brief enough so they don't get their own chapter themselves. But who, who do you think the, the reader will go woe to the most? Oh, I think that depends on the reader. I mean, I had one person who read it say that uh, Captain Ken was the most uh, exciting and vibrant character. Um, for me personally, I think it probably was um, my first love, Sam, who I met in college, and he was in grad school. Because uh, that was at a time when I was still really thinking about what I wanted and, and how I could make a commitment. And he was a really good person for me to be with then. And Sam really, um, <clears throat> Sam was very political. Mm -hmm. And Sam helped you to, um, to realize that you wanted to do more um, in the way of community organizing. So mm -hmm. I, want, I did want to bring up the part of your life before I met you that took place in... Um, was it New Haven? What was the city that you were in? Uh, Hartford was Hartford. where Yukon was. Yep. Yes. So can you tell us a little about your experience about moving into the community in Hartford and uh, starting a, a center for children to attend? Yes, there was um, a program at the university uh, called Urban Semester, uh, which I applied for for my uh, first semester of my senior year. And the idea was that um, a group of students would go into the north end of Hartford and live there. We had apartments, 
and you and each um, student could choose a social service agency to work with. Um, and we had quite a different array. There was um, prison reform to Head Start to food pantries, all different types of agencies. So um, that was a very, very um, intense experience for me. Because we lived there, right in the community, in a housing project, we got to know the people in the neighborhood, and then we got very close to the people we worked with there. So that really informed me for the rest of my life, I think, about um, social justice. And, um, and in that program, there's a wonderful part in the book where your urban semester is over, and despite being very mistrustful of you and the other people who were in urban semester at the beginning, the people that you worked with, that you helped set up activities for children for, um, really felt that you had made a great contribution and wrote you a, a, beautiful, a beautiful poem. poem. Um, so, that's, so that's how you got on the social justice warrior path. Mm -hmm. So then from Yukon, why did you decide to move back to Newton? Well, after Yukon, I moved to Portland, Maine to join a commune where my, my boyfriend Sam had moved and along with a couple of his friends. So as soon as I graduated, that's where I went. And in Portland, um, I worked at a, a Head Start program there. And everybody in the commune shared, their, shared all their money. We gave it to our treasurer. and We got $5 a week for <laughs> <laughs> spending money. And... Um, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a very interesting experience. It was a whole community in Portland at that time of uh, back-to-the-land hippie types. And Portland was tiny compared yeah. to what it is now, right? right. I mean, yeah. it wasn't like a major foodie city. And, right. And cruise ships didn't stop in Portland or anything like that. Right, yeah. But um, what caused the commune to fall apart? Uh, well, eventually, the whole idea was um, we were following the guidance of Scott Nearing, who... Uh, wrote Living the Good Life. And we were planning to move to the country to buy some land and do subsistence farming and create a community. Um, so eventually we had saved enough money to buy some land and, and it was done. And um, so they left Portland and moved to the country. Only uh, three of the people ended up starting there. Uh, I had already moved back to um, the Boston area to give myself a break from my relationship with Sam to figure it out because I was already having doubts. So, um, and that lasted for a while. Uh, a house was built and they had a pretty hard struggle making a go of it in Maine and that eventually dissolved. So, I mean, that for <clears throat> those of you who aren't aware, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a definite back to the land movement I know because I was anti back to the land because <laughs> I liked the city and also I was too lazy. I never could have built a house with my own hands. <laughs> Subsistence farming to me means you go to the supermarket and there's lettuce and you put it in a bag and you buy it. So there was a definite split in the hippie community between the, the ones who wanted to start rural communes and the ones who wanted to do urban organizing. Yes. So you kind of went from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, so then you moved back to Boston. We mm -hmm. ended up being roommates. Yep. And um, you had an interesting European experience mm -hmm. that is, to me, is, is one of the funniest parts of the book, sad and funny. Um, you fell in love with a musician and an engineer who you met 
at our favorite bar, which is the Plow and the Stars in Cambridge, which still exists. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened with Ivor and how you ended up uh, earning his mother's eternal hatred? Uh, well, I think we dated for about a year and a half before he decided to go back to Ireland. And in fact, he told me when we first met, I'm going back. And so I started to develop a, a romantic vision of what life would be like in Ireland and that I would move back with, with Ivor and it would be a wonderful romantic experience. And when he finally did move, um, I planned to go visit him. And already by the time he had moved back, he was living with his parents, he, uh, he was starting to show doubts about whether or not our relationship could be carried over to Ireland, and um, told me that it was probably not a good idea that I come visit. But I was adamant. I had already booked the plane ticket, and I decided I'm going. So um, when I got there, his mother seemed rather cool to me to begin with, um, and it only got worse from there. Um, the, big, the big issue was probably religion. You know, they were very strong Irish Catholic, and I pretty much had given up on religion. Um, I thought we could work it out. I thought there wouldn't be any problem with that, but this was Ireland in the 70s, and that was a no-no. So. so that was a mighty culture clash yes. between mm -hmm. you and Ivor's mother, but also I think this happens with people who come over to the United States and then return a lot. So they're in the United States, they're living like a free and fine American life, and then really their hearts are back where they, where they originated, in their mm -hmm. country of origin. They go back and then they immediately fit right back into that slot that they left. Yes. So all the liberal American values, especially if you're back living under your parents' roof, kind yep. of disappears. But I thought his mother was just, she was like, the witch, the wicked witch of the West. She yeah. was. You wouldn't. The first Sunday you were there, you decided not to attend church with them. And as far as she was concerned, you were written off. That was the end of that. That's right. Ivor came home while they were at church, dragged me out. Said, "You have to get out of this house right now. My mother doesn't want you here. Pack your bags." And uh, so that's how dramatic it was. So what happened in Ireland after that? So he brought me over because I couldn't even afford to upgrade my ticket to go home. He brought me to a friend of his house who had an American wife. And um, I ended up staying with them for the, uh, the rest of week and a half before my flight was due to go home. And we bonded right away because, you know, both being Americans and and it, it was a lovely, lovely experience, although I have, I have lost track of her. And lost, hopefully lost track of him yeah. forever. <laughs> yeah. So then you came back, but you, <laughs> you decided to, uh, to explore art and mm -hmm. specifically silkscreen printing. So can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about how you started um, with, with that occupation? Yeah, I took a class at the Cambridge Center for Adult Education in uh, silk screening, and it was it was held at um, the uh, the artist's studio in North Cambridge, and uh, it was a great experience. Not only learning a new new technique and a new skill, but getting to know the other people in the building. It was a whole building of artist studios, and um, it was a really unique place. So that's that's where I 
really got hooked on silk screening and um, started, you know, making prints on paper and then moved on to doing uh, work on T-shirts and fabric and I uh, have been doing it ever since. And you also, amazingly enough, one of your dreams was to open your own store. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell the viewers about how that actually, that, that was a dream that was fulfilled. Fulfilled. Uh, well, while I was living in Cambridge and making art on Harvey Street, um, I got involved with a, co a cooperative called the Christmas Store, which has been around for a long time. And it was a seasonal uh, crafts cooperative, only open at Christmas time. And through that, I got to know a lot of the other craftsmen in the area and had this vision of opening my own store similar to the Christmas store, but on a smaller scale. And I um, started looking for real estate and ended up going um, to a rock, uh, Bearskin Neck in Rockport and renting a store and opening my own shop. And the name of the shop was? Made in New England. Okay, so um, <laughs> the... the, um, the what represented the shop was a beautiful mermaid. And I helped work at the shop sometimes <laughs> to relieve you because you lived in the back of the shop and in the front. And these uh, tourists would come into the shop <clears throat> and they'd ooh and odd everything in the store. And then they'd pick something up that someone had labored for probably 30 hours to make and say, I can make that for $2 at home. So I think that was, um, it was very, disturbing to find out that there was, in tourist areas like Bearskin Neck, there's very little respect for the work of artists. And you could probably put all stuff made in China out there, cut the label off so they didn't know, lower the price accordingly, and be more successful than you ever were doing actual handmade crafts. Exactly. There was a, I remember there was a, a storefront there that sold uh, seascapes, paintings, oil paintings, and they were all uh, kind of like uh, uh, factory produced. They'd set somebody up and they'd just do the, the water and this person would just wow. do the seagulls. And they were selling them for, you know, cheap. So any of the, the real artists on Bearskin Neck were getting undercut and the tourists had no idea that what they were buying. So that was a dream that came true and didn't end up being a long-term occupation. Right. But um, you did go on from there to be successful in another field. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you did before you retired? I mean, it's still s s kind of veering back into the childcare arena. Right, um, I, I did study uh, child growth and development at college and that was my major. And I did work in a, a center when I was in Portland, but uh, kind of got away from it while I pursued my art. But I eventually ended up going back to um, early childhood ed at a program in Gloucester called Pathways for Children where I supervised family child care providers. And um, it was good to get back to, to doing, you know, social justice again. This was, these were, most of these families were, um, uh, had some issues uh, and needed support and help. So we had a whole social service component um, and it was great to get back into that field. Okay, well, I'm afraid we're out of time, dear viewers. Ooh. So to find out more about Jane's life in between the evil Irish Ivor <laughs> and her happy life now as the single mother of a grown-up son and uh, 
a dog and a house <laughs> and still doing art and producing a successful memoir, you'll have to buy the book. It's called Serial Monogamy by Jane Keddy, and it's available through Amazon. And Jane, I want to thank you for being uh, with me today and for including some of my really ridiculous illustrations in the book. And I wish you the best of success, and I'm so glad you were able to fulfill many, many of your dreams. Thank you, Eileen, and thanks for being my best friend for all these years. Love you. <laughs> okay, books to viewers, I hope uh, our love fest wasn't too <laughs> nauseating for you, but really it's a great book. Um, some people have written in their Amazon reviews that they are not able to put it down. So hopefully you will be one of them. Um, hope you enjoyed the show today and have a good night.